Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. If you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your mobile device, um, please turn with me to the book of Matthew. As we've been in uh, Matthew chapter 5 for some weeks now. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 is where the Beatitudes are, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Lord reads this way. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. The 19th century Scottish evangelist Henry Drummond once wrote, Become pure in heart. The pure in heart shall see God. Here then is one opening for soul culture. The avenue through purity of heart to the spiritual seeing of God. So we're now in the fifth part of our series on the Beatitudes titled Hashtag Blessed. And in this series, we've been talking about what it means to be truly happy, what it means to be blessed as Jesus talks about in this text. And I must admit that I've read through this part of Matthew many, many, many times in my Christian life. And, um, uh, I, be- and I believe that every time I've read it, as I've read through it, that I've had a pretty good handle on what Jesus is saying here. And, and maybe on the surface level, I did. You know, at the, at the very first surface level reading, I probably had a general sense of where the, the text is going. But my study of this text and digging into the context of it the last several weeks as I've been, been preparing to preach the word um, has given me really new insight. And I have may, may have read these world, uh, words several times before, but I really believe that I've been missing the heart of what Jesus is communicating here. Because what Jesus is talking about here isn't a list of things to do. Okay? Understand that this is not a list of things to do, but this is a heartfelt way to live. And as I've considered these words and studied them, God has been dealing with my own heart. He has used these beatitudes to change me and to grow me. And I want you to know, if you find these teachings challenging, so do I. If you find what Jesus says here uncomfortable and convicting, me too. Right? If you find that even though these teachings expose in you a brokenness... In your life, but you feel a deep desire to grow closer to God. Same here. That's what the Word of God does to you. These blessed statements are not just Jesus offering us pithy little statements of wisdom. He's talking about a radical life change as we come into and live in the kingdom of God right here on earth. And that's what this series is all about. And in the first week, we opened up and we talked about the fact that we all want to be happy. Every single one of us. Wants to be so. 
But what we discovered is that permanent, long-term happiness is not found in the things that anything that the world has to offer us here. Not in money, not in being married, not in celebrity status, not in your career, not in your children, not in your grandchildren, not in your friendships, not in power or hobbies or possessions or even popularity. None of those things create the long-term happiness and, 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 and blessedness that we all seem to crave. That kind of happiness that we're looking for is only found in a relationship with God himself. In fact, we hunger for that. And Jesus promised, though... That we can have this kind of happiness. We can have this kind of blessedness. That it's available to those who follow him. And Jesus calls his happiness makarios. It's the Greek word that means happy. It means fortunate. It means to be well off. It means to be in an enviable position. It also means blessed, but supremely so. And Jesus says that we can be deeply happy like this. We can be supremely blessed. But like we said, this blessing isn't found in stuff. It's not found in anything the world has to offer us. It's found only in the things of heaven. In fact, Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 5 gives us a list of attitudes that bring us this kind of blessedness. He says, blessed are the poor in spirits. Blessed are the, those who mourn and the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness as well as the merciful and the pure in heart. He says... Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed, supremely happy, well off, in an enviable position are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, as we talked about, if I was going to write a list of things that I thought were going to make me happy or blessed, this wouldn't probably be it. Right? But Jesus makes it very clear that that blessedness, true happiness is for those who exhibit these attitudes of being poor in spirit, mourning, being meek, being persecuted and being pure in heart. And he says that blessedness, true happiness actually comes from having this right heart attitude with God and having the right perspective and attitude about God and about ourselves. And so with that, we began to examine this in context to see if it's the truth. And we found that, yes, it is. Chapter, I mean, uh, chapter 5, verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that blessed is everyone who understands that they are spiritually broken and bankrupt. Blessed is the one who understands he's completely dependent upon God. Because that person is rewarded with the kingdom of heaven. Not because they deserve it, but because God in his grace gives it to them. In verse 4, blessed are those who mourn over their sin because that sorrow leads to repentance. They're blessed. For their sorrow because they're comforted with the knowledge that they're forgiven of all their sins, past, present, and future. And then verse 5, it said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And what we discovered is that this statement isn't talking about Christians being weak. What he's saying is those who are willing to set aside their power and to restrain themselves in meekness for the glory of God. Those are the ones who are truly blessed because they're the ones that will live in peace. And then in verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And what we discovered is this hunger for righteousness is a God-given hunger. A God-given need to be merciful and pure at heart and to make peace. And it's not that they start out that way. It's just that God, 
as we come in this life-saving relationship, changes us and instills in us this deep-seated need for these things. We need these things because we have a deep-seated need for God himself, and that need will be met. And then last week we looked at verse 7. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And what we saw from this verse is that not only is being merciful part of righteousness, being merciful is the natural outgrowth of a real up-close relationship with God. We're merciful because, because we live in the light of God's continuing mercy. We have a clear understanding of the debt that we owe to God because of our sin. And because of that forgiveness, we're moved to compassion that urges us to forgive those who hurt us because their debt by comparison is minuscule. And we're blessed and deeply happy because we continue to receive God's ongoing mercy. And the real issue that we came to terms with is you cannot have both long-term happiness and bitterness in your hearts. They are completely incompatible. It's a contradiction in terms. Being merciful requires a change. But being merciful is what's best for us. It's absolutely what is best for us. It is, but it also... God's will for our lives. It's his will for us to be merciful. And it's best for our families. It's best for our communities. But ultimately, being merciful glorifies God. And now what we can see as we've seen these so far is that there's a pattern emerging here. Being poor in spirit, mourning, being meek, thirsting for righteousness, being merciful. What we see in these beatitudes is that it's about living with a correct understanding and attitude about God and our relationship to Him. We are poor in spirit because we have nothing to offer God to make Him love us. We mourn for our sin because we understand sin is destructive and gets in the way of our relationship with Him. We are meek because we want God to be glorified by our actions, even if it costs us something and we don't, have, we don't retaliate. We're, we, we, we thirst for righteousness because we thirst and hunger for God himself. We are merciful because not only is it best for us, but it glorifies God. And it shows the world around us that there is a God and that he is real. You see, in each one of these statements, the central focus of these beatitudes is, is the focus is God. It's about God and how we relate to him. The central focus of each of these statements is God himself. Blessed are the poor in spirit because God is gracious. Blessed are those who mourn because he is holy. Blessed are the meek because he is glorified. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because God is righteous. Blessed are the merciful because he himself is merciful. You see, the reason why people are blessed is because each of these attitudes points us toward and draws us closer to God. Each of these beatitudes focuses the believer on God himself. And the next beatitude is no different than that. In fact, the next beatitude is verse 8 where Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What a clear statement. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those who are pure in heart, they are blessed, extremely happy because they will see God. What an incredible promise that is. Because that's the cry of our heart. We want to see God. That's why we sing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. To be high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory is what we sing. 
Open up the heavens. We want to see you. Right? I want to, I want to know you more. I want to hear your voice. I want to touch you. I want to see your face is what we sing. If there's a desire that is common to man, if there's a desire common to those who love Christ, is that we all want to see God. We want to see him and be in his presence. We want to experience him firsthand. I mean, we want to experience God. I mean, we we do experience God through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we experience God through his word. We experience him in our prayer life. We experience him through fellowship and worship as we come with other believers. We experience him um, in his presence when, when times are hard and we feel his hand. And all of these connections are, are wonderful and life-giving. But to, but to have the veil of sin lift, over our, lift off of our eyes so we can physically stand in the presence of God and see him. To have the barrier of this world removed so we can actually walk with him the way that Adam and Eve walked with him in the garden. To look and see his face clearly. What an amazing promise to be able to see God. In fact, uh, Pastor John Piper says that seeing God involves at least three things. He says, number one, seeing God means being uh, admitted into, the, into his presence. It means to be admitted into the presence of the king. And that absolutely is our hope. Not to just think about him. Not to just meditate on him. Not to just study the word about him. But to actually come into his presence. And we all kind of have a sense of what that moment would be like. For instance, I haven't seen my oldest son in several months. Right? I think about him every day. Right? And, and I can look at him in pictures. I can watch little videos he sends me and stuff like that. Right? And that's great. But my heart races at the prospect that I'm soon going to be able to go see him with my own eyes and hug him. Right? I don't want to just talk to him on the phone all the time. I want to be in his presence. And you all know what I'm talking about. Now, that kind of experience can give me deep joy. Being in my son's presence can give me that kind of joy. Then what will it be like when I stand in the presence of God? To experience that when we die or when Christ returns. To where we immediately stand face to face with God. There'll be no more barriers between us and him. We will, we will be in his life-giving presence forever. And being in his presence, number two, we will be awestruck by his glory. When I think of God, this, you know, and how awesome his power is in my heart, you know, my heart is moved. And when I think about the universe being over 96 billion light years across, And I think about it's that God that made all of that and he stands outside of that, but he's still present in every bit of that. My heart is moved to reverent worship. And when I think about that God, as big and powerful as he is, I realize that he knows my name and he cares about me. I'm moved to tears. Imagine what that was going to be like to stand in that God's presence. You've never felt joy so deep in your life. You've never experienced a love so pure. You've never seen light so bright. You've never seen anything in the universe so beautiful. You've never beheld anything so majestic that in all the lifetimes of all the men who've ever seen anything could compare to that. 
We will be awestruck by his glory. We will be spellbound. We will be devastated by his, his beauty. As Bart from Mercy Me sings, Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. We will be awestruck by his glory. And because of that, we will, number three, be comforted by his grace. I find great comfort in the word of God. I find great comfort in, in his promises. Right? The promise, I will never leave you, forsake you, has brought me great comfort over the years. I find great comfort in God's promise that he will work all things out for, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I find great comfort to know that I'm saved by grace through faith. And it's a gift of God, not something I can ruin because it's not about my efforts. But imagine what comforts we will feel when we stand in the presence of the one who is light, the one who is love, the one who is righteousness. Imagine the comfort that we will feel when he welcomes us home as his children and as his family. Imagine the comfort and the grace that we will, we will get when we're standing next to him. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. When he says, welcome, my friend. My child, I've loved you even before I created you. My heart yearns for that day. My heart longs for that day. A day that I'll finally see with my own eyes. That I will meet and see my great and glorious God. And that's what Jesus is promising here. It's the promise of this beatitude. He says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. But in this statement, Jesus draws a line, a very clear delineation. When he says, blessed are the pure in heart, he, he says, for they shall see God. You see, not just anybody gets to see God. Not just anybody gets to enter into his presence. Not just anyone gets to be awestruck by his glory or comforted by his grace. Not everyone will get to see him. It is only the pure in heart. The pure in heart get to see him. Those whose hearts have been purified. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then he says, cleanse your hearts, your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What does Jesus mean that the pure in heart get to see God? I mean, what is this qualification of being a pure in heart? Does it mean we have to be perfect? Does it mean that we have to do everything right? Does it mean that we have to never ever have any more bad thoughts? What's he talking about here? What does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, one of the things that we need to, to see in this statement that I've overlooked so many times is the word heart. And what you and I need to understand is the fact that Jesus is interested in and cares about your heart, not your behavior. Jesus didn't come to earth in order to make us better people externally. He came to change your heart. He didn't change, he didn't come here to make you, quote unquote, a better person. 
He came to purify your hearts. Matthew 15, 8 says, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In Matthew 23, verses 25 through 26, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. Jesus didn't come to the earth so that you'd be a better human being. He didn't come here so that you'd be a better citizen of Boron or a better citizen of America. He didn't come here so that you would follow all the rules. He didn't come here so that you'd be nicer to your neighbor. He didn't come here simply to clean up your language and clean up your attitude. He didn't come here simply to clean up your, uh, um, the way that you treat your neighbor. He came here to change you, to remake you, to make you brand new. He came to change your hearts. What you do externally is not even the points. Right? The fact that you follow some rules isn't the issue. It is your heart that Jesus is concerned about. That's why Jesus makes the point in the rest of this sermon. He makes a point to take the law that everybody's trying to obey. And he raises the standards and makes them higher. He takes the rules that people are trying to, to, to fulfill externally and he makes them heart issues. In fact, look with me to chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. He says, You have heard it said of those uh, of of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to to judgment. Jesus is saying, that's what the law is telling you. Right? That if you, you, you shouldn't commit murder, it's bad, you shouldn't do it. It's an external behavior thing. But he goes on to say that this is not just an external issue. It's an issue of the heart. Because he goes on to say, But I say to you that anyone or everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You hear that? This should make us set up and be sober in our minds about this. If someone was angry with his brother, he is just as guilty in God's eyes as someone who has murdered someone. Why? Because you're accountable not only for your actions, but you're accountable for what's in your heart. And just because you don't act on your anger and beat the daylights out of someone, right? And just because you don't react in your rage and kill someone doesn't make you a good person. It just means somebody, you're just someone that can restrain yourself and follow rules so you don't get in trouble. It doesn't say anything about your heart. Jesus says in verse 27, 28, You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, it's not enough for us as a church to campaign for a world free of adultery and infidelity. Okay? Jesus didn't die for that. He died to change your hearts. Because the fact, is if, the, the fact that you don't physically perform the act of adultery doesn't mean that you're not an adulterer. Right? You're just a rule follower. That's what Jesus is getting at. If you look at a woman lustfully or a man lustfully, or if you look at pornography, if you have lustful thoughts about someone who's not your spouse, you are an adulterer at heart. You're just as guilty as the one who's committing the act. Jesus is saying is, is, is managing your behavior and following the rules isn't the goal. Changing your heart is the goal. In verse 31 and 32, he says, 
It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of immorality, sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, Jesus is driving home this point that, that divorce may be legal. It may be even justified under the law. And you can follow all the rules and, 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 you know, to a T. And you can be justified by your friends and, the, and, and your community and the law and all this other stuff to get a divorce and be justified according to everybody else's standards. But unless your wife or husband is unfaithful to you, you're falling short because, because everything else is a heart issue. Well, I'm just not happy in my marriage. Well, let me tell you, marriage isn't supposed to be about happiness. It's supposed to be about the commitment that you make. It's a heart issue. Well, she just don't do what I say. That's your problem. It's a heart issue. Well, I just don't feel like we know each other so much anymore. <laughs> Still a heart issue. The vast majority of divorces in our country are not because someone is actually doing something deeply wrong like abuse or infidelity. I think abuse coincides with infidelity. But the vast majority of divorces don't end up because of those things. They simply are heart issues. Right? It's simply a decision not to follow through on the promise that was made before God. Jesus cares about your heart. In verses 38 through 39, Jesus says, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In this text, Jesus acknowledges that people have a right to defend themselves under the law. To extract justice and even to get even. But he moves beyond that and he deals with our hearts and he says, The true right thing to do in your hearts, the true right thing to do is for you to turn the other cheek in meekness. In fact, it goes further and says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Jesus is saying, if you're following the rules, right, and you're loving those who love you back and you're getting even with those who wrong you, all those things are fine according to the rules and the law. All those things are fine according to, to what everybody thinks is your rights that everybody's trying to live by. But when you live this way, you demonstrate where your heart is. That's the thing that we have to come to terms with. You're, when you're trying to follow the rules and live this way, you demonstrate where your heart is and your heart is on you. When you get even for a wrong committed, when you hate your enemies, you're not doing anything wrong according to law. You're just demonstrating where your heart is. You're demonstrating that the one who's enthroned on your heart is you. You see, you can't turn the other cheek if your heart's set on you. You can't possibly love your enemy if your heart is set on you. When you're the one that's sitting on the throne of your heart, you are capable certainly living by a set of rules, but you're not capable of living a life that glorifies God. Because you can only do that when God is at the center of your heart. You can only glorify God when he is the one that's on the throne. You can walk in meekness. You can turn the other cheek. You can feel compassion for those who are hard to love. You can love the unlovable. You can, have, you can be merciful when God 
is the central focus of your heart. You can find a way to make your marriage work. Even when things are hard, when Jesus is the center of your heart, you will hunger and you will thirst for righteousness when he is the one that's on the throne of your heart. You will even follow and live by the rules when God is the center of your heart. But it won't be because you're trying to keep the rules so God will accept you and love you. You will do it simply because you want to glorify God in gratitude because of what Jesus has already done for you. And we all know the difference. We know the difference between following rules and having the right heart attitude. If you've had children or have had grandchildren, you know that there's a difference. Because there's a difference when your child says he's sorry when he has to or when there's a sincere apology. If you're a child or a teenager or even just an employee for that matter... You know the difference between doing what you're told because you don't want to be in trouble and doing what you're told out of love and respect and duty. There's a difference. It's a heart issue. That's what Jesus is concerned about. He's not concerned about your behavior to do the right thing. He's concerned about where your heart is. And Jesus came to change your heart. And the fundamental change in your heart that changes everything in your life from your motivation to your attitude to the fruit of your actions is where is your heart actually centered? Is your heart centered on you? Are you the one that sits on the throne of your heart or is God the center? Jesus absolutely wants and demands your heart to be centered on him. He wants you to make him the king that sits on the throne. He wants you to live your life and make all of your decisions and everything you do in, in light of him being the focus of your life. And that really leads to this idea that Jesus is getting at when he talks about being pure in heart. You see, being pure in heart doesn't mean that we're squeaky clean inside. That's not what Jesus is getting at. It's not even possible in this life. All right? Being pure in heart doesn't mean that you won't wrestle with ugly thoughts. Being pure in heart doesn't mean that you won't be tempted and even like fail. Being pure in heart doesn't mean that your intentions are always going to be good. Because those things are still just behavior modifications anyway. Being pure in heart essentially is about who are you living for? In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, gives us a clue and says this. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You have these competing desires. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He's saying, you don't have... What you're asking for because you ask wrongly. You ask with you and your selfishness at the center of your heart instead of God. And then he really stings us and says, you adulterous people. Right? What's the point? Why does he say that? Well, because adultery implies a divided loyalty, right? You're supposed to be committed over here, but then you're committed to something else. That's the idea. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That who, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose, and is no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you? Understand, any time there is anything else on the throne of your heart, whether it be your desire 
for money or your desire for fulfillment at work or your desire for happiness, you know, through relationships and intimacy, whether it's your desire to be blessed through popularity, whether it's your desire to escape reality through drugs and alcohol, all of that puts you at odds with God. But then he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. God opposes who seek their own. God opposes those who live by, live only for themselves and their own interests. God opposes those who refuse to submit, to make him the king of their lives. In fact, he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. That's really clear. Submit yourself to his lordship. Submit yourself to his kingship. Submit yourself to his control. Submit yourself to his sovereignty. Set your heart on him and by contrast, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You see, you don't have to be a rule follower to fight temptation. You don't have to be a rule keeper to walk in obedience with God. You just need to submit your heart to God. You need to surrender yourself to him completely. And James goes on to say, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. My favorite promises. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And there it is. James says, purify your hearts for you are double-minded. That's the issue. When you are double-minded, you do not have a pure heart. You are double-minded because you have a divided heart. You have a heart that is that has competing loyalties. You have a heart that has competing interests. On the one hand, you want Jesus and all the blessings that he has to offer. And on the other hand, you want the satisfaction that comes from the things of this world and what it has to offer. Having a divided heart is, is to be looking for satisfaction and deep happiness and blessedness in God and also the things of this world. That's what it means to have a divided heart. That's what it means to be impure. Your heart... For God is contaminated by your, your desire and lust for everything else. In fact, the theologian Soren Kierkegaard once wrote, Purity of heart is to will one thing. Because purity of heart is to become singular in your heart. Not divided. It's to become singular in your heart towards God. To become pure in your heart is to become wholly devoted to God in your heart. It's to make him the king. It's to make him the center of your life. It's to make Jesus Christ the central focus of everything you do. In fact, Jesus goes on and and, and it tells us in the greatest commandment. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your, what? Your heart. And then he says, and with all your soul and with all your mind. If that wasn't emphatic enough. He says the greatest commandment in the scriptures is to love God with your unified self, to love him without a divided heart. The greatest commandment is to put God at the very center of your entire life and to make him the focus of all that you do and think about. He's to be the focus of how you live. He's supposed to be the focus of how you parent. He's supposed to be the focus of how you conduct yourself at work. He's supposed to be the focus of how you manage your money and how you coach And how you treat other people, even strangers. The greatest commandment is about being pure in heart and having a heart that is completely united and devoted to God. Now, what does that 
mean for us then? Well, John Piper, in a sermon that he preached on this beatitude in 1986, which I was like a sophomore in high school, I think, back then. 1986, he has this sermon, and his words still resonate today. He says, Jesus says that the pure will see God. That is, purity is a prerequisite for seeing God. The impure are neither granted admittance to his presence, nor are they awed by the glory of his holiness, nor are they comforted by his grace. Jesus' point is the same as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Or in other words, blessed are the holy, for they shall see God. There is a real purity and a real holiness which fits us to see the king of glory. And of course, this leads every sensitive soul to cry out with the words of Proverbs 29. Who can say, I have made my heart clean, that I'm pure of my sin. And with the disciples, who can be saved then? And Jesus answers, comes back to, comes back just like it did to the disciples in Matthew 19, 26. And with the rest of the answer, with men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, God creates a purity for us and in us that we can pursue purity. And by his grace, we must seek that gift by praying with David, create in me a clean heart, O God. And we must look to Christ who gave himself up for us to purify himself of people. And he goes on and says, And the response of our hearts to God's act of creation and Christ's act of sacrifice is single-minded faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. As the scripture in Acts 15.9 says, God made no distinction between them and us, but he purified their hearts by faith. God is the one who purifies the heart and the instrument by which he cleanses it is faith. Therefore, trust in the Lord with all your hearts. Will this one thing and you will see God. Now, how do we make this practical? Well, if you have not already moved to faith and put your trust in Jesus Christ, then you understand will not see God. If you have not turned to Jesus in faith, you will not see God. Your heart is not pure. But you can fix that today. Today's a good day to turn to Jesus and put your trust in him. Today's a good day to exchange your loyalty. Today's a good day to stop trusting in yourself and living for yourself and put your trust in Christ and begin living for him. Today's a good day to purify your hearts and put your trust in Christ and to begin to live for the king. And if you're ready to do that today, then come talk to me after the service. I'll talk to you about the scriptures and walk you through that. Otherwise, if you're shy, you can come by and see me at the office. Or if you're really shy, you can just pick one of those little information request cards. Put your name on there. Say, I'm shy, but I need to talk to you. And put your phone number and I'll get a hold of you this week. Now, if you're someone who is already in a relationship with God and you're trusting him, here's the challenge this week. 
what I want you to do is I want you to ask yourself one question. How can I make Christ the center of my heart? How can I make Christ the center of my heart when my boss comes after me and gets after me about something that I didn't even do wrong? How can I make God and Christ the center of my heart when my kids are driving me up the wall? Right? How can I make Christ the center of my heart and my relationships? How can I make, how can I treat other people? Right? How can I make God the center of my heart and the way I use social media? In everything you do, from cooking to cleaning to talking to sharing to driving, ask the question, how can I make Christ the center of my heart in this situation? If you ask sincerely, God will begin to reveal that to you. You'll begin to be led by the Spirit. And then the hard part then, what I encourage you to do, is then do it. Live For Christ at the center of your life. Make him the king on the throne of your heart. Because he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you, Lord God, that this isn't by my own effort. I praise the Lord that the purity in heart is the work that you began in me. And I pray, Lord, and I thank you, Lord God, that you have so much grace and mercy for me as I continue to, to try to remove you from the throne and put other things up there, including myself. I pray, Lord God, that all of us, Lord, would just hear your words here and that we would make this the story of our lives and our hearts. Not that we're going to be perfect, Lord, because we know, we understand that this side of heaven, we're not going to be perfect. There's going to be a tendency as your word, you know, you, you, you exhort us in Romans, right? To, to treat our bodies as a living sacrifice, right? Well, the problem with living sacrifices is they crawl off the altar, right? That we're going to, we're going to stumble and fall in this area, but give us the grace and the knowledge when we do, that we turn right around, Lord, and we yank whatever idol we put on the throne and we put you right back there, Lord. And we ask this question every day, sincerely, show me, Lord, how I can live with you at the center of my life in all the things that I do, in all of my relationships. And through that, Lord, that you would continue to change us and remake us into the image of your Son and our Savior. And Father, I'm begging you. I'm crying out to you, Lord God. Raise up a people in this room who would go out into that world, Lord, and boldly share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And that we would live as Christ-centered beings all the days of our life. We love you for your promises. We love you for your word. Christ, let me pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world. Thank you.